Good evening. It's Wednesday, the 11th of May, and it's 7 p.m. Good evening, and welcome to Resistance TV. My name is Sean Bloor, and I'll be your host for this evening. And tonight, I'm going to be speaking to Steve Topple, who's a journalist working for The Canary, um, all about the Thursday's local elections. Now, unfortunately, Steve can't be with us live this evening. So here's an interview that we recorded earlier this afternoon. Hi, Steve. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? Hello. I'm fine. Thank you very much. Um, just to tell everybody, we have had a bit of a hiccup. We got it 20 minutes into the video and we've had to start again. So take two, Steve. <laughs> OK, so the reason why we're speaking to, the, to Steve this evening is he's done an analysis on the local elections, which were held on Thursday, as most of you probably know. Now, we picked up an article that Steve wrote for Byline Times, specifically about elections in the Red Wall in Hull. Now, before we go on to talk about that article that Steve has written, I just want to ask him a few questions generally about the local elections. Um, so before we get into that, can I ask you to like, subscribe if you're new here, click the notification bell. We're here every Wednesday at 7 p.m. So, um, Steve, take two, as I said. Um, what I'd like you to do, first of all, is um, can you give us your overall perceptions about the local elections and what messages did the public give out at the ballot box? Of course, absolutely. I just want to, I have to correct you. Um, it was for Bywire News. Oh, um, Bywire, sorry. Who I wrote for. Um, yeah, I don't think Byline would have me. Um, I like <laughs> Peter Duke. I'm getting really well with him, don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't think Byline, um, I'm, I'm not kind of um, centrist enough for Byline's palette. So Peter Dukes is lovely though, I'd just like to say. Um, okay, so, thank yeah, you for correcting me on that. <laughs> Look, the local elections, I mean, what can we say? So I'm going to deal with them because there's an important distinction to be made, which I know we're going to come on to later. I'm going to deal with them in terms of the public who did vote and what those results showed. So, I mean, overall, look, there was an undoubtedly clear message sent to the Tories of dissatisfaction and a major message of disquiet, I think, from the public, probably elements of Partygate thrown into that, possibly also some some kickback about the handling of the pandemic. And moreover, you cannot detract from, as I call it, the ongoing class war, but what the media frames as a cost of living crisis. Um, you cannot detract from that either in a minute. So there was kind of there was that message, I think, was sent from the public. You only have to look at the fact that the Greens picked up um, 120% increase in their councillors, huge result for the Greens, um, which I know quite a few people pointing out on social media that if it had been UKIP, um, the leader of UKIP would have been all across BBC News on Question Time the following week and for every week ad infinitum from that. Um, but very, very few murmurs from the mainstream corporate media about the Greens' phenomenal success, 120% increase is, you know, huge. Um, Lib Dems, not quite so huge percentage increase. It was around a third, I think, 35%, 35% increase in the number of councillors, which equates to just over 220 councillors. But again, a great result for them, a massive increase, um, which, of course, the Lib Dems are quite rightly celebrating. Um, Tories, um, very bad result across the board, but Boris Johnson appears secure still, doesn't he, for some ungodly reason, um, best known to the Conservative Party themselves. Labour's result, I mean, we had this, there was this huge, huge kind of fanfare from Starmer and this column by Lisa Nandy in The Independent, where she was proclaiming it was real progress, real progress for Labour after after 2019. We're, on, we're back on the road to the recovery of Labour, real progress, real progress. Um, real progress, what does that look like to Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer? Well, that's a 3.8% increase in councillors across the whole of England, including London. When you take out London, it's a 0.98% increase in councillors. But that's real progress, real progress, you know. Um, so I think it was John Curtis, the famous pollster, who summed it up that actually, well, Labour have not shifted at all on Jeremy Corbyn's local elections result from 2018. They've maintained where they were. Um, I mean, considering... We've had a pandemic which has been exposed that the Tory party were 
basically operating on the one rule for them, one rule for the rest of us policy. Um, considering we're in this cost of living crisis, um, Labour can only increase their vote share outside of London by 0.9%, or other councillors by 0.9%. Um, hmm, interesting. But yeah, it was good day for the Greens, good day for the Lib Dems. Um, if you believe Labour, a good day for them. Um, not such a good day for the Tories. Yeah, but it, it wasn't actually a good win for Labour, was it? Because <laughs> that's not entirely true. I uh, I did remark on Lisa Nandy's Twitter feed oh, okay. that um, it only interpreted to 22 councillors, not councils. Yeah. So for them to only get a net gain of 22 councillors throughout the whole of the UK is not a win. That I mean, that is despicable, considering that they are up against the worst Tory government that we have had, um, in certainly in my lifetime, and I was around during the Thatcher years. Um, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's despicable, really, that they're, they're trying to turn that into a win. Um, no, so why I mean, sorry, just to say those 22 gains, I think it was eight of them were outside of London as well. I mean, it's just, it's just like preposterous um, to think that, that it was anything other than uh, at best no improvement at all. Um, and as you say, at worst, I, I would agree it's the worst Tory government probably in my lifetime. And I lived, I was alive in the Thatcher years as well. Um, the sheer nefariousness and nastiness and evilness of this Tory government um, is quite something to behold and the drift to literally the far right kind of corporate fascism which I've written about a lot is is there for everyone to see in plain sight and yet still Labour can only pick up an increase of 0.98% in councillors. Um, hmm, interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, there was a bit of uh, a surprise in London. Uh, I think it mm -hmm. was Croydon and Tower Hamlets. Um, a new party called Aspire yeah. uh, took those councils. Can you tell us any more about them? Yeah, that was very interesting. I mean, look, they 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 kind of sneaked in, didn't they? I think they got 24 councillors to Labour's 23. Someone might have to correct me. I might be wrong on that. Um, look, I'm not an expert on Aspire or what's gone on with that party. There was some controversy over their leader, who is now the elected mayor again, over his mayoralship, um, booted out of office, I believe, with accusations of electoral corruption, um, so on and so forth. That's not, I'm not an expert on that, and I'm not going to comment on that. There was two sides to the story. As there always is. What I would say is that Tower Hamlets has historically been and still is one of the most deprived councils in the country. Child poverty is consistently over 50% there and clearly the people who did come out and vote and who voted to spy in in both the mayoral position and to lead the council despite whatever has gone on historically in terms of electoral alleged corruption, clearly for the electorate that did vote those issues were outweighed by the appalling state that um, their lives are in living in that borough under historically a Labour council for years and years and of course Labour MPs as well. Um, so clearly whatever has gone on in the past with Aspire um, wasn't quite as bad as the, the state of people's lives living in Tower Hamlets and clearly they change was needed in their eyes and they've just voted in change. So I mean it is, is very interesting. Um, there's lo there's a lot to unpack with that issue. I mean, it, it's it's extremely complex, but I think that's probably the bottom line. Um, but we'll come on to why I keep saying the people who did vote later on. I think, aren't we? So, yeah. Um, so, why do you think people did turn to vote Green or Lib Dem? Well, look. I mean, this is this is local elections, um, and it's. There's elements of the Green Party are very good at local level and they're for all my critiques of the Green Party and my, my stepdad calls them Tories on push bikes, um, which I think is a fairly accurate description. Um, for all my criticisms of the Greens, um, they're not, they're not, they make out they're progressive actually quite often they're kind of middle class um, environmentalists effectively, which is absolutely fine if you are, that's not my cup of tea. Um, but for all the issues they do have at a local level, they're quite often very good. They're quite often embedded in the communities that they're standing to be in. They're very good at door knocking. Um, they're very good on 
climate catastrophe that we're living through, which is an issue on a lot of people's minds at the minute. And, you, and when you're faced with the Tory government on one side who are doing less than the bare minimum about the climate catastrophe, as, as I've reported on, um, they put a moratorium on fracking in 2019, which was an election pledge. Now all suddenly know, well, we're looking at fracking again, you know, never mind the climate catastrophe. We're going to look at extracting a hydrocarbon again from the earth um, that causes earthquakes and is shown to pollute drinking water and so on and so forth, destroys local communities. But Tories are going to look at that again. You can't take them seriously, therefore, on the climate catastrophe. Labour, very weak, a lot stronger under Corbyn with the whole idea behind the Green New Deal. Um, Labour still very weak on climate. And I think so, therefore, people who are concerned about that the greens are still a bit of a natural home very good at local level very good grassroots activists quite often as well and that clearly translated in people wanting to see these kind of councillors in in positions in their local authorities um lib dems again quite often they are embedded in their communities they're kind of filling there's this kind of void really at, at the minute isn't there there's this void of kind of centrism almost, because you've got a far-right Tory government who are far-right. There's no kind of dressing it up when they're willing to deport refugees to Rwanda um, with no right of return, when they're literally enacting laws which allows police to seize the entire property of the Gypsy Roma and Traveller community, um, therefore incredibly institutionally racist, um, plus everything else that they're doing. You cannot consider the Tories anything other than a far-right party now. So that ain't really kind of Lib Dem territory anymore. Um, you've got Labour who Keir Starmer personally and systematically muddied the message on the EU to undermine Corbyn, as lots of your viewers will know. And that message has kind of become not much clearer since then. And you've got that, you've got this kind of centrist tranche of the electorate who are looking for a party that's still pro-EU, that's more socially liberal, um, and that is in their local communities. And I think the Lib Dems are filling that kind of centrist pro-EU gap very well at the minute. And there is demand for it. I mean, as you you said, if you know, if I if I wanted to write for byline, um, I'd need to follow that kind of that path, as it were. Um, so there is that demand, and no one's filling that kind of gap at the minute. So that is the natural natural home of the Lib Dems. Um, I think there was also that you you can't discount protest vote within that. I mean as we kind of reeled off at the start, the Conservatives, I mean, it's it's just, it is diabolical. They are diabolical. They're evil. There's no, there's no doubt about it. These people are nasty. I mean, even Theresa May, for all her faults, for her appalling go-home vans um, and so on and so forth, with her, I always thought there was, she was a, there was Christian, she's a Christian and there was Christian values and she had that very traditional conservative approach of almost feeling sorry for poor people and that we have to kind of pat them on the head and give them something because we feel sorry for them. This bunch of, I won't swear because it's not before watershed, but this bunch of Tories hate poor people, hate disabled people, hate anyone who isn't Anglo-Saxon um, and are the most far-right governments probably in recent memory. Um, and therefore, there are going to be elements of the protest vote within that when it comes to to elections. Um, how that would play a general election remains anyone's guess. I mean, we went from a hung parliament in 2010, where the Lib Dems got into bed with the Tories, to 2015, which was the most disproportionate election in electoral history, where millions of people voted for the Greens and UKIP um, and didn't see it reflected in the number of MPs, to under Corbyn, we went very much back to two-party politics, and it could turn almost presidential in terms of that it was Corbyn versus May and Corbyn versus Johnson. So how these local elections would pan out at a national general level is kind of anyone's guess but so overall mixture of protests but i think very much that it was reflective of people's desires for local communities and that's why the lib dems and greens picked up votes as well mm. but i think the the biggest story of the night was the fact that it was the turnout wasn't it <sighs> yeah so look I, so i've just spent what 15 minutes um, giving all this analysis on what the local elections mean and and, and how the party shaped up and, and the implications nationally and sort of historical picture on that. It's all essentially nonsense, Sean, really, when you check it. 
because the real story of the local elections, as it always is, and as no one really wants to talk about in any great detail, is the turnout. I mean, on a national level, uh, the figures, I don't think as of today, which is Wednesday, 11th of May, I don't think the figures for turnout still have properly come in, but um, it's the 2018 elections, which is the last comparable one. Turnout was around 34%. Um, so two thirds of the electorate in the 2018 local elections did not vote. Um, and turnout was probably on track to be that for these elections as well. I read that the Spectator, if you believe what they say, said they, that it was looking to be about 1% lower than 2018. So turnout has gone down again. The point being that I can sit with you for 15 minutes and give all this wonderful analysis and my opinion of what the local elections mean. They don't actually mean anything because most people didn't vote. Therefore, um, it's kind of meaningless really. And I, I can, obviously I'm going to go into more detail than that, Sean, but that's the overall point. It doesn't mean anything. It, it's, it's absolutely preposterous that um, we read anything into local elections, nearly as preposterous really as reading a lot into general elections, which I'll come on to later. We can't read anything into it because most people didn't vote. And, they, and, and it is as simple as that. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, it beggars belief in, in a time of such a a bad cost of living crisis, the worst I've ever seen, where the government's only answer uh, to it is to give people a loan to pay their energy bills, which they're going to have to pay back. Um, and we're seeing such low turnout at the elections. People need to get, I mean, I have to say, I didn't vote this time. I, I didn't, I, I was going to go and spoil my ballot, but I didn't get around to it. Um, but there was only the main parties to uh, to vote for. And as far as I'm concerned, you can't get cigarette paper between them. They're all the bloody same. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know whether my opinion is reflective of the majority of people who only have the four or five main parties to uh, to vote from. It's uh, it, it tells a big story the, the 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 politicians and the local councils don't reflect what we as people are experiencing within our communities. Would mm. you agree on that? Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, so for the record, because um, I, yeah, <laughs> I talked about this a lot under Corbyn um, and I kind of got some flack and I ended up voting for Corbyn anyway. Um, no, I spoiled my ballot on Thursday. I will always, I always, unless there's some crisis at home, I will always tend to go out and vote, even if it's just to spoil my ballot and therefore it's counted as a spoiled ballot. But no, I spoiled my ballot here. Um, I was stuck between... Labour, Tory, Lib Dem and Greens. Um, I can say that where we live, it's one of the poorest council estates in the country. The country is divided up into what are called lower super output areas, which is like 32,000 postcodes where the government does lots of data on them and works out how much poverty there is and so on and so forth. And our estate is in the top 1,600 out of 32,000 most deprived areas in the country. Um, not one of these candidates door knocked around here the only people who dropped leaflets through our estate of about a thousand people were the Tories. Um, no door knocking, no leaflets from anyone other than Tories. Why should I vote for these people? Um, why should I? They've given me no reason. I don't know what their policies were. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> no leaflets through my door, no door knocking, probably because they wouldn't dare step foot on our estate. Um, is actually more to the point because um, you never see them. They never, you never see anyone around here um, campaigning. Um, it's never happened. It didn't happen in. It didn't happen in the 2019 general election actually either. But so no, for me, there was no reason for me to vote vote for any of them on that basis. Never mind the fact, as you say, you can't put a fag paper between them. Um, and moreover, the, the fact that um, would they really be representative of? my community and what my community needs anyway probably not none of them live around it um they live in some other part of the 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 ward as it were and as i say i haven't seen them so and that's me as a working journalist who understands the intricacies of politics follows it every day um writes about economics and dwp blah, 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 all the time i am voting for any of them so how on earth would you expect someone working on their gig economy in Uber and to work in Amazon, packing up boxes for poultry minimum wage under terrible working conditions? Why should they vote for them? 
<laughs> if, if I ain't going to vote for them, why the hell should some of the most deprived, put upon, um, depressed by the system people in this country vote either? I don't blame people. Um, and that's that's a very blunt way of putting the argument. It's actually a lot more complex, of course, than that. But it's kind of the bottom line, really. I mean, and I think you want to talk about Hull. Hull is a microcosm of this issue, and it has been for years. Um, so in Hull, in the local elections on Thursday last week, um, the Lib Dems took the Council of Labour um, Lib Dems now control. Turnout was 23.5%, even lower than what is probably going to be the national average. That equates to the Lib Dems, as I wrote in this article for Bywire.news, um, that equates to the Lib Dems being put into power on that council by 10% of the public. 10% um, of the public who can vote voted for the Lib Dems to put them in power. That is not democracy at all in any way, shape or form. Moreover, Hull, one of the most deprived areas in the country, nearly half, I believe, yeah, nearly half of the areas in Hull count as being in the top 10 most deprived areas in the country, polling rates of child poverty, um, really, really entrenched deprivation. It's been like this for years. Um, and yet here we are in a situation where the Lib Dems getting 10%. 10% of the electorate voting for them. Problem is, this has not changed in Hull either. It was very similar under Jeremy Corbyn, and the shift was already actually happening under Jeremy Corbyn. In 2018, um, the local elections then, turnout was slightly higher. I think it was about 25%. Um, it's all in the article that I wrote for bywire.news. Turnout was around 25%. Labour lost eight councillors in that election, and the Lib Dems gained seven. So that rot of Labour clearly being so um, disenfranchised from the public, or rather Labour disenfranchising itself from the public, um, was already setting in in 2018. The switch was happening then. And this election last Thursday just cemented that switch and the Lib Dems took power. But as I say, the turnout was appalling then. And, there's, and this is reflected not only at local level, but nationally as well in general elections, um, which I think we'll talk on a bit later as well. So that's kind of a separate issue, but I do want to touch on it. And Hull was this microcosm of nearly everywhere in the country. You had similar issues in places like Newham, where child poverty is consistently above 50%. Turnout was in the 20s. There was one, there was even one area in Hull, which I found out, where the turnout was 14%. I mean, you can't. These people have not got mandates from the... No, no, they don't. They've not got mandates. They've not got consensus, which is what democracy is supposed to be all about. There is no mandate for any of them, literally none of them, even even Tower Hamlets, where a spy got in. I crunched the numbers on that as well and put it on Twitter. The spy mayor was elected by just 20 percent of the public and the party overall was elected by 15 percent of the public. Um, and yet that's being trumpeted as some major upset for Labour. There's no major upset at all. If only 15 percent of the public voted for them, they do not have a mandate to govern. Exactly. Have a mandate to govern. And, um, and the big issue is here that people are not voting. They yeah. don't see themselves as part of this system. Yeah. And we, we need a complete system change, don't we, Steve? Um, we, we need to, to help people become more politically aware, show them that their issues matter and we can change their issues. Um, I just want to say tonight we're talking to Steve Topple from the, the Canary. He's a journalist, writer. He's an independent uh, journalist as well, writes for other outlets. Um, please do um, connect with him on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Steve? Yeah, all my socials are at Mr. Topple. Okay, so connect with Steve on his all, all his socials and uh, you'll get all of his articles. Um, so what, what do you think the answer is to this, Steve? Okay, so what do I? The answer is very complicated because first we have to work out why this is happening. Okay, so I don't want to kind of go into some long philosophical debate, but I think it's it's not as clear cut as well. People aren't voting, 
and we need to get them to vote because there's a lot of chatter at the minute. It's coming up on my Twitter yeah. timeline about should we introduce mandatory voting? That ain't going to solve the problem either. I mean, it, it, you know, the holding a gun to people's heads and saying you've got to vote it doesn't really solve the issue of why they weren't voting in the first place. It just makes it forces them to go and tick a box once every four years. Um, so we need to look at why it's happening. And the first important point to make is this is not just a problem with local elections. It is a problem with general elections as well. Now, while the turnout in general elections tends to always sit around two thirds um, of eligible voters coming out and voting, because it always does, it's always in the kind of mid 60s, isn't it? That tends to be fairly stable, it fluctuates up and down a bit. That's still a third of the electorate, so anywhere between 13 and 15 million people who are not voting. That's still a huge swathe of the population. And the reason it's even more of a problem is because analysis and statistics show that the majority of those people are from the two poorest social grades. Now, if your viewers don't know, social grade is kind of a different definition of class. It's far more accurate, in my opinion, than just going, well, these people are working class, these people are middle class, these people are upper class, because it takes in lots of factors like income, educational attainment under the system. Um, it takes in housing. It takes in quality of the environment they live in. Anyway, so it's like five social grades. You have A, B being the richest. You have C1 being kind of middle class. C2 being kind of upper working class and D and E are the poorest people. E are people who are reliant on social security for whatever reason. D are people in manual kind of Amazon gig, whatever jobs. Um, and the problem with turnout at the local elections is that these this 33%, this third of people who don't vote, the majority of them are always D, E social grade. They're always from the poorest social grade. And what we saw in 2017 and 2019 is Contrary to what you may hear from some people on social media and from the Labour campaign at the time, poor people did not come out to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. What happened in 2017 and 2019 was that the proportion of DEs actually voting fell to its lowest level on record. Just 53% of the DE social grade groups, which is about 21 million people, just 53% of them turned out in 2017-2019. That was down from just over 55% under Ed Miliband's leadership of Labour in 2015. So how much we all loved Corbyn, he still wasn't reaching the poorest people because they weren't, they, were, they came out to vote even less um, mm. under him. And that's a major issue. So the first thing to address this is to say that this is not an itch issue of generally people not voting. This is a major issue of the poorest people being disenfranchised by the system to not voting. That's what's going on here. It's the poorest people in the system political, media, corporate class has disenfranchised these people. How is it disenfranchised these people is the next issue we need to address, because if we know the how, then we can look at the resolution to this issue, can't we? So the how, I mean, it's been going on for years. It started off, it really took hold with Thatcher's deindustrialization of the North and the smashing of the trade unions, because up until that point, the poorest people and the working classes had some form of organisation. They also had political education. It was always centred around trade unions. Community life quite often was centred around trade unions. Um, and there was political education. People were given the opportunity to understand politics and to feel like they were invested in it. Thatcher got rid of that by getting rid of the trade unions. It wasn't just about corporations' rights and smashing trade unions to further the financial services industry, as she did with the Big Bang in 86 and so on and so forth. It wasn't just about that. It was about the beginning of the end of the working class as an organised movement. That has just continued and continued and continued with successive governments. In the past kind of decade, it, it's gone on to steroids. As I've repeatedly written, things like universal credit have been intentionally designed by the Conservative Party as this kind of digital workhouse where all poor people can be lumped together under one social security system and anyone who manages to get off it by climbing the greasy pole of capitalism a bit more, fine, lovely, anyone else, you're stuck on there. You're under universal credit and that's not changing. It is this digital workhouse in effect. 
The Tories have introduced countless other policies, policies to continue this disenfranchisement of the poorest people, from library closures being a perfect example of that. Mm. That wasn't about books. That was about shutting organising space for the poorest communities and restricting people's access to internet. Bear in mind that about 4 million people in this country still do not have internet access at home. It's a fallacy. We've all got the internet. We don't. Um, over nearly 1.5 million of them are disabled people as well. Um, we don't all have the internet. Shutting libraries was more about closing off community spaces and restricting the poorest people's access to the internet than it was about books. Um, I could go on. The mechanisms of doing this, of disenfranchising people so much that they do not loan are no longer invested in our political systems in this country is done by many, many mechanisms. The system itself does it as well in terms of time poverty. It's something that's never discussed. No one wants to talk about it. The Joseph Rowntree Foundation did some excellent work on it after the financial crash. But time poverty is a thing. That is where people are so time poor that they are barely able to keep themselves out of financial poverty. It's, it's a bit more complicated than that. But it's, Basically, the thrust of it is the system applies so much pressure on poor people. Firstly, well, you've got to work three jobs to try and meet all, all your bills and keep yourself afloat. Or alternatively, you've got to be kind of subservient to the DWP and constantly jump through hoops with them just to get the social security you're entitled to because you're chronically or disabled. Um, all this creates you time poor. And when you are so time poor and in, in such entrenched poverty, it becomes all consuming. Because yeah. it does. Anyone yeah. who's lived in poverty knows it dictates every aspect of your life when you're constantly worrying about money. Um, it consumes you, and therefore you do not have time or headspace to think of, well, hmm, I wonder what an alternative to a Keynesian system of economics would be this week. Um, you don't have time to think about that. You barely have time to keep up with the news, which is another major issue and the reason why people are disenfranchised, but that's too much for one mm. show. Time poverty and the time constraints the system forces upon the poorest people is another major factor. We don't have the headspace for politics. I barely have the headspace in politics, and it's my bloody job. Um, so all of this combines and has combined over decades and decades and decades to get us where to a point where the Lib Dems can be elected to run a major council in a major city in this country by just 10% of voters. That's how we got there. And there's a lot more to it than that. But that's ultimately what it is. The system, political, media, corporate class have disenfranchised four people so much, they're not interested anymore. And they do not wish to vote because they know it's not going to benefit them. Yeah. Because when has it? When has it benefited them? It demonstrably has not benefited them. And and when, when politicians do come up with maybe some solutions, um, they get lied to. They they just don't trust. They're not trusted anymore, are they? This they, they think um, politicians are corrupt. They're self-serving. They lie to us, and that's unfortunately that's what we're seeing um, yeah. from this current political class. Exactly so. I mean, and this is the thing. Or alternatively, you get look. I mean, I I've never been. I was brought up in a peculiar household. My dad was a communist. My mum was a Green Party supporter and a Christian. Um, I mean, you kind of meet those two together. I had a weird political upbringing. Um, <laughs> but I, I was brought up in a really left-wing household, regardless of the ideologies that were sort of at war with each other. Um, I was brought up in a left-wing household. I've never been a confident Labour voter, even under, under Corbyn, um, just because I think the system is too far gone in some respects to it for it to be reformed by the current model of politics we have. But that's another yeah, matter entirely. Yeah. I mean, if I've, I voted for Corbyn twice. I did vote for him in 2017 and I voted for him in 2019 because on principle, I know, I've met him, he's a thoroughly decent man. He's a lovely man, nice man, principled, not a bad bone in his body. And what he was proposing, he was proposing and the people around him were proposing in the best interests of the poorest people in this country. That was undeniable. Whether it would work or not is another matter entirely. But we all know that that wasn't what was presented to the public. However much independent media and Corbyn and Labour activists tried to, that wasn't what was presented. And I didn't want to get into the media because I always talk about the bloody media. But in this context, well, we have they're, to they're so integral to, to our politics yeah, and no, to the system. You can't avoid it, can you? I mean, we the only it. it's, we, we know that if you're adopted by, um, if you're a political or a politician who is adopted by Rupert Murdoch, 
you are the person who will become the next prime minister. And unfortunately, we can see this with Starmer. You know, he started writing for the Sun when he said, quote, he would never write for the Sun. And, um, you know, here he is. He's been touted to be, you know, the next prime minister if he doesn't if he doesn't resign beforehand. But I don't think he will. <laughs> um, well, he, yeah. knows, he knows Durham Police. Uh, you know, he, they didn't charge Dom, Dominic Cummings, did they? So he's not going to get charged. You know, for, so for saying, "Oh, I'll resign if I get fined," absolute rubbish. Yeah, of course. Well, yes, of course. Yeah. Let's not get into that um, because I mean that's just you know, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I rant. No, no, it's fine. I mean, I mean, Sean, <laughs> if you want to do a three-hour show, that's all good with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Look, the, 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 we can't get away from the media because it is crucial. Because as I was saying, Corbyn, family, principal, decent man, politics which would have benefited the poorest people in this country, whether it worked long term remains to be seen. However, that's where we were at with Corbyn. Um, the media painted a completely different picture. As we know, there's been various academic studies into it, most notably by Loughborough University, which repeatedly have come back and said the media was essentially running a... Um, baseless and particularly nasty smear campaign constantly about Corbyn, completely misrepresented. Tories had overwhelmingly more press coverage, so on and so forth. So the media actively worked against him and that was represented by the fact that however close we think he got in 2017, the poorest people still did not vote for him. They didn't. And they turned out at their lowest levels. That is not because however much certain quarters of social media and the political and media class will have you believe. That's not because poor people are stupid. Um, that's because there's still this huge distrust, as you touched on. People don't trust any of them. Coupled with then the media campaign against Corbyn, and this is kind of what this is what I was going to say, but then said I wasn't going to, but I'll touch on it anyway. Media is a major issue, and it's not so much a major issue because of the level of propaganda. Media is a major issue because it ties into this notion of time poverty. You and me, Sean, we're really invested in politics. We actively seek out news on politics, don't we? We, we constantly, yeah. well, I spend my time on Twitter. It's part of my job. I have to doom scroll every damn morning um, through the hellscape that is Twitter to try and, you know, find out what's going on so I know what I need to write about today. We're really invested in it. Yeah. Time poverty generally means you do not have the time to be that invested in politics. So how you gather your news is snippets from social media. It is undoubtedly, as Ofcom's own research every year shows, from the BBC, because that is the news source, whether it be on the television, on the radio or on the Internet. That is still the most used news source in this country is BBC by a country mile um, year in, year out. It actually increased during the pandemic um, because they turned into this weird wartime kind of broadcaster. Um, but we'll get on to that maybe later. Um, so people still consume their news via these mediums, but they consume it very, very quickly because of time poverty. People are not like you and me, where we spend our time looking on Twitter. The majority of people, and especially poor people, have got 10 million other things to be worrying about just to keep themselves alive, let alone spending time digesting and analysing news. People pick up headlines. People pick up quick snippets of news. BBC News at six o'clock with one of their lovely trusted anchors at the helm. That's how they consume their news, and they still do. Therefore, what they're told about politics and mainstream politics, regardless of not whether they're intelligent enough to have the capacity to understand further, they're going to take that. Why wouldn't you? I mean, I, you know, I do a lot of the time and I have to check myself because people don't have the time and headspace because of the way the system treats them and what the system makes them do. Um, so how much I don't want to talk about media, we have to because that's how they're, and the media knows this. They know this. They know that they can drop. I mean, it's, it's like that. Ugh, I, Dan Hodges, I didn't want to mention his name. It's like that Dan Hodges column where they mocked up Corbyn as a vampire and saying that they the party had to kill the Corbyn vampire. I mean, he here is Dan Hodges in the past few days going absolutely into one about the treatment of Starmer, how terrible it is, blah, 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 blah. You call for Corbyn to be killed, you hypocrite. I mean, it's, it's just preposterous. But it's these kind of things which resonate with the public because of the way people consume news. And it's because of the time constraints the system puts us under, essentially, that we do not have time to consume news anymore. We're just keeping alive, literally just keeping alive. Um, and that's true of the poorest yeah. people. And, and I can attest to that as a former primary school teacher. 
um, I worked in a um, a school that was not far from Manchester United football ground. So you can imagine it was a very diverse socioeconomic area. Um, majority of our kids' families were poor um, and they were just trying to keep their heads above water, you know, like working two, three jobs, you know. I used to, they didn't have time to sit down and help their kids with homework or listen to them read. And that wasn't their fault. They were consumer trying to make money to put food on the table to feed themselves, feed their kids, um, I, you know. I, do you know what? I'd like to say at this point, I'm going to be very honest, and I have written about it before, I've been very honest. I'm not saying this coming from some like, I don't know, I'm not living in Islington. Um, and writing for certain other independent media outlets um, and doing kind of shows every night and having a third of a million followers on Twitter um, while I jet off to a foreign country and get married, um, not naming any names. Um, I'm coming at this from a place of I'm sat in a housing association house. The universal credit payment went into my bank account today. Half of it's already gone on paying bills. Um, I am kind of living it as well because I work yeah. in independent media ain't well paid we don't have the money <laughs> to like pay me like the going rate for working as a journalist which i'm quite happy with because what i get in return is freedom to say what i damn well want um and also to actually make a difference with things like the training and mentoring program i'm doing at the minute with the canary i can actually tangibly make a difference and i can get that in another outlet but what that does mean is that literally my universal credit sorry our universal credit dropped into my bank account today and i've already divided up amongst bills i need to go and top up the gas and electric after this because it keeps running out really quickly can't think why that is the point being i'm not coming at this from my ivory tower i'm coming at it from actually living to it and i'm quite lucky really and privileged as is my family we're not like bottom of the barrel even on universal credit by any stretch of the imagination we survive month to month um i work one, two, three. I work for four different outlets to do it, um, but we still do. But I do get it. And I've been poor. I mean, I was screaming down the phone at the DWP because we'd run out of toilet roll, but it doesn't effing matter anyway because we've got no food in our fridge. Under Tony Blair, this problem isn't new. Um, we may think it's new. We may think it's a Tory issue. It ain't a Tory issue. Entrenched poverty has been around for however long. The point being, I do know it because I have lived it and I currently am reliant on the DWP. So, and it is exactly what you said. You get consumed and even I do. I'm, li I'm literally consumed in a minute with keeping financial things afloat, juggling things and juggling work to be able to let my stepson go through sick form, um, to be able to get my chronically disabled girlfriend what she needs, blah, 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 blah. It's a mission to do it yeah, and there's plates yeah. spinning everywhere constant plates spinning um and i don't and it's my job to keep up with politics and even i'm like oh, i'm not even reading that i haven't got time to read that i haven't got time to look at that and that's me so you know you take what i do as a living out of it and this is where we're at this is why poor people don't vote because the system makes their lives so horrific and so oppressed that they do not have the time or the headspace to do it. And that is by design. It is by design. It's been done on purpose for decades. And we still need to resolve, Sean, how we overcome that, don't we? Yeah. I'm sorry <laughs> if you can hear my dog barking in the background. What's your There's dog someone name? at the door. She's called Riley. Riley. Hello, Riley. <laughs> um, how do we overcome this? Really difficult question. Um, I have, on a personal level, I have kind of moved past the point of having any care or particular interest in Westminster politics I don't think that's the answer anymore I think I wrote it actually in 2016 and it came true I said that if the Corbyn project didn't work out that would be the last time socialism would get a sniff in in the Labour Party um they will not allow that to happen mm -hmm. again and I don't think they will I don't think it's going to happen and it, it will it has happened we've already seen it purely on the basis of the amount of members, decent people who Corbyn, um, Corbyn Starmer has purged already from the Labour Party, which is just going to continue. Um, electoral politics in this country has had it um, for the foreseeable future. I don't think that's the answer. I really do believe the answer is that we have to start looking back to almost like traditional ways of doing things, which is starting off in communities. We have to start off with ourselves and our neighbours and kind of work from there upwards, really. Perfect example um, is on 
the estate I live on. What I would love to do, and I've discussed it with Nicola, my partner, what I'd love to do is put a leaflet through everyone's door saying, hi, we live at number 88. Sorry, we live at whatever number that was. <laughs> I'm a journalist and I know all about the DWP. I can help you with your social security claims. Um, come knock my door, give me your claim. I'll look at it and I'll get your damn money for you because I know the DWP inside out. I think we need to be looking more to back to community organising around Absolutely. issues that can, issues that can unite communities because on our estate, the DWP would be an issue which would unite most of the estate, as would issues of social housing. Most people on our estate are the same landlord, same social landlord. We're all infested with mice. Um, it's a major issue. We've sorted it. Um, and <laughs> um, yeah, we've sorted it with our housing association. We know why there's a major issue and it's the same housing association. We could unite everyone around this one issue. And I think that's how as activists, as independent journalists, as people involved in smaller political parties, anyone who is interested in bringing about actual social change in this country, that's where we, our heads need to be at. We need to be thinking about small local communities, bottom up, um, led by the communities themselves, trying to organise on that level, because it ain't going to be politics that's going to change us anymore. That has gone. Corbyn is gone. <laughs> it's never going to happen again. Um, and we have to realise that. And we have to start at local level, changing in our own homes and then working out and up, I believe. And I really do believe that's the way that things will eventually change. Um, yeah, it's as simple as that, but it's as blimmin' complicated as that as well, because it's not easy. Not no, no, it's it's not easy. And um, as you know, the resist movement is uh, currently registering to become a political party. We won't tell you what the name's going to be just yet, um, <laughs> but I'm sure we'll be putting out some press releases when we're we're ready to launch, uh, and you'll be one of the first people to know, Steve. Um, so. Um, so yeah, we, we're going to be launching as a, a new political party. We are going to be a green socialist party. And one of our one of our ideas, funnily enough that you've just said it, was to have uh, was it would be to train up people who could be advocates in mm. their communities communities uh, for people who are going through the DWP process, they're they're applying for PIP, they're uh, applying, you know, they people who need a bit of assistance um, because the Citizens Advice Bureau, it's not cutting it. They don't have enough staff. They they don't get paid. And, you know, they, I think they've, the councils have, have cut funding to them. Uh, go on, Do you know Steve. why they're not cutting it? Do you know why go they're on. not cutting it? The DWP bunged them tens of millions of quid a few years ago, which tied them into a contract saying they could not criticise the DWP. Absolutely Fair. ridiculous. Is that your dog? Sorry, Mum. No, it's my mother. I'm just I'm just recording a program. <laughs> oh dear. Um, yeah, so, so tens of millions of quid with a gagging clause in it. So what can you say? Yeah, but oh, that's but that's incredible. That's unbelievable. So pe people need this service. They need this help, um, and um, we 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 it's something that we want to do. We we're applying for for grants and things like main people up um to do that oh dear it's just turned into chaos here at my house um so so yeah that's that is one of our ideas and hope hopefully that will give people the confidence uh, that we are tr genuinely trying to help and trying to change yeah. things um with the system no absolutely yes yeah uh, it is what's needed is absolutely what's needed um i mean it's it's going to take an awful lot of work though because as as i alluded to earlier on we've got decades of damage to undo stretching back at least to thatcher's smashing of the trade unions um if not probably before to actually start reorganizing and reconnecting our communities together um and it is it's going to be a monumental task not least i mean we're where do you start with the challenges, Sean? I mean, the challenges are, for example, on this and probably every other council state, you've got a mixture of tenants, for example. Oh. You've got some people who are housing association. You've got some people who might be council tenants still. Housing associations, goodness knows how many of them there are now. I mean, there's loads of different ones on probably every state in the country. Um, and then you've got the added complication of how many of those houses are bought by right to buy 
now. So they're not even they're not even housing associations. So they bought the house, or certainly someone bought the house, and it's now the property of a landlord who's renting it out at price. I mean, there's layers and layers of complexity. It's not it's nowhere near as simple. And I'd be it would be foolish of me to say it was and think it was kind of like rose tinted glass scenario here. That it's as that is it's as simple as that. It isn't, but it needs to happen somehow. Um, because I think it's the only way things are going to change. There was a fascinating, there was a conference a few years ago in Canada, which um, Naomi Klein, who's one of my favourite journalists, favourite writers, um, all her books are on my bookshelf and I've read them cover to cover 20 times. Um, Naomi Klein was involved in this and it's a conference and they, they're basically all these um, like-minded people locked themselves in a the room for like three days. And they thrashed out this model, which would be that, okay, if we really want change, how do we go about it? And the, the fundamentals of it were that we need to start changing very small scale one at a time. And it was the idea that you took a local community on a kind of town or possibly even small city level and tried to make that um, almost a little pocket of resistance and start by ingratiating communities together then build it up. And eventually the point being that these smaller towns or cities would become autonomous to their national governments that eventually lead to this kind of independence movement, if you like, um, which I believe the name escapes with it. There's that communist kind of enclave in Spain, isn't there? Um, and I can't remember what it's called, but that does still exist. Um, there's one in Spain which is run by communists and they've got full independence from the Spanish government. So there's this idea that came out of this conference that we kind of do it like that and eventually it kind of spreads and spreads. It's almost like the idea of socialism leading to communism, I suppose, that you, kind of, you spread socialism and it spreads and spreads and spreads and then eventually you can do the transfer to communism. It was that, but based on community values. And I think it's kind of that which we need to be looking at really we have to start on small postcode level and work our way out um it's going to be really hard <laughs> it's going to be it really is going to be really hard and i don't think anybody's um you know anyone's de denying that um but we've got to start somewhere we've got to start to change the system we've got to start doing things for ourselves so not only um you know advocating for for, for people in our communities um but also trying to teach people how to set up cooperation uh, co you know uh, cooperatives and things yeah. like that um mandy claire who's a counselor in warrington she was on with us um week before last and she um she's like just left labor and she's now come over to resist mm. and is our regional coordinator for the northwest and she's done an awful lot of work in um poverty and she's created this policy called the, Poli uh, the poverty emergency which covers all sorts of things so she's she's got her own website which explains what the policies are motions that you can give to your local councils to pass um etc toolkits strategies to use and she part of that she's she's researched um different uh, she's uh, cooperatives who've just helped themselves so she was talking about um belfast uh, women's cleaning company they got together they formed a, a cooperative and uh, you know they're all working together they all know how to run the business from top to bottom putting in bids um doing the invoicing all that kind of thing and it's working really really well and that's a way of getting out of this system is to to be doing things for ourselves exactly that's a really good example that is a perfect example of how it can work and you're right it is that exact turn of phrase it's getting out of the system it's trying to get out of all the constraints and the and the mechanisms and the and and the ways of working that the system puts upon us because only then truly well firstly can we all be emancipated anyway but only then truly can we start to properly bring about change because it's impossible within the system. I think we've got to draw that conclusion that we have to somehow work um, supra or extra to the system now mm -hmm. to achieve this. And that workers' cooperative you're talking about is a perfect example. It's like, it, it's almost like Catalonia in the sort of 1930s Spain um, with the anarcho-communists, I suppose, isn't it? Um, and similar to what Catalonia was trying to do a few years ago. Um, we have to we have to cut the system out of the equation almost entirely. Um, Doing it is, yeah, no mean feat, but that is a perfect example. Exactly that. Workers' cooperative, um, 
everyone, the organisation completely horizontal, everyone, there's true egalitarianism and equality across the organisation. And these little things then spread out and become bigger things because all the women in that cooperative will tell their families about it and tell their friends about it. And so on. And that's how these things then spread. Oh, that's a good idea. I wonder if we could do that. You know, we have to take it back to basics, really, I think. Um, and, we do, we do. And part of doing that is getting in tune with the independent media, um, listening to Resistance TV, trying to learn something, trying to find out a bit more about the independent media, about organisations that are actually doing things out there in your communities to, to help, um, which is we, we try to bring you that here on Resistance TV. Um, and finally, you know, if, if people have an organisation, they're in an organisation or a campaign group and they want to come on Resistance TV and tell us what they're doing, if they've formed a, a, a cooperative themselves, drop us a line on admin at resistfest.co.uk and uh, we'll get you on Resist TV and we can have a chat about it and try and educate people uh, about what they can be doing for themselves. So we've got about five minutes left, Steve, um, before we bring this to a close. Um, I know you're working on a project with the Canary. Do you do you want to just spend a few minutes telling us about that? I would love or is to. Is it confidential? Confidential? No, I would scream <laughs> it from the, from, from the council estate rooftops, Sean. Um, Go on, no, then. No, at all. No, I love it. It's like the best thing I've done in years, um, and I am genuinely, genuinely, genuinely loving every minute of it, and I know the people involved in it are going to be watching because I told them I was coming on. Um, so, so I'm running this project called Amplify. It's a training and mentoring programme for people from marginalised communities um, who are in these poorest social grades that I spoke of earlier. Essentially, it started life as we did round one, where we took um, 13 young people aged 16 to 25, who were all from the bottom three social grades. We took these 13 young people, they applied to join the scheme. And what we do every week, we have workshops in media where we train them in all sorts of things, um, be that article writing, video production, basic media law. Um, we teach them how to use Canary publishing software. We teach them how to use our internal newsroom. Um, they learn about opinion writing, which is very difficult to di different to article writing. They also, during the course of the nine weeks, which is how long the programme lasts, they produce a piece of work which the Canary pays them for, and then we publish. Um, it sounds quite simple. It's kind of so we launched this last December um, and we got our first um, 13 young people did it. Um, it was Nicola, because Nicola actually makes a lot of, <laughs> Nicola makes a lot of suggestions about how things like the Canary should work and Nicola's brilliant ideas. And it was Nicola's idea to say, well, why don't you open up this up to chronically ill and disabled people? So, of course, we opened it up to chronic ill and disabled people. At the minute, we've got 25 people on this training and mentoring programme, which I'm running solely myself. Um, they're absolutely brilliant. I mean, they're all, so they're doing these weekly workshops. They have fortnightly meetings where they all get together and talk about the specific articles they're writing that we're going to publish. Um, they have weekly group meetings in smaller groups. They're in WhatsApp chats together. Um, and it's just, it's like the best thing I've done. These people are amazing. The work that was produced by the first 11 participants was phenomenal. You can check it out at www.thecanary.co slash amplify. They produce these amazing bits of work. The 25 current cohort are also producing amazing pieces of work. The range of topics covered is diverse. But what is so good about it as well and why I do it, no other media outlet, corporate or independent, to be perfectly honest, would touch them. They would not touch them. Firstly, because a lot of them left school age 16, haven't got degrees in journalism. Most of them haven't got degrees at all. They're all from the poorest, the majority from the poorest social grade, actually, which is E, because 60% of them rely on social security. 80% of them are either chronically ill or disabled. Um, no other media outlet would give them the time of day. Um, but these are exactly the people who need to learn how to do media because they are completely unrepresented in both independent and corporate media. I mean, there's figures out from the National Centre for Training of Journalists just a few days ago, which showed that across the whole of journalism in the UK, just 2% of journalists 
come from the poorest social backgrounds mm -hmm. compared to 21% of the population. That's like a 90% disparity here. And never mind chronically ill and disabled poor people, which is another matter entirely. Um, the poorest people have no representation. Therefore, they are exactly the people who need to be getting into media. And Definitely. that is what we're to do. So it's absolutely, I love doing it. It's like the best thing I've done in years, literally. Article writing, nah, not interested in that anymore. I want to do this like all the time. Um, That's amazing. It's, it's just amazing. amazing. It's exciting. And they're all brilliant. I know they're going to be watching. And, and how can them. people get involved? Well, you can't get involved at the minute because we're fully booked. Um, <laughs> so for your, for your next slot, your next course. Okay, so I'm really pleased. We crowdfunded, and thanks to lots of people who donated, we reached our main target, 1,500 quid. We hit our stretch target, which was three grand. We went over our stretch target, so we've secured funding to do it for a third round, which is going to start in September. Um, it's a nine-week course. You do a workshop every week. You have group meetings every week. You have other meetings every fortnight. There's quite a lot to be done, but it goes completely at people's own pace. There's no pressure. It's not like school. It's not like work. It's all quite laid back as current participants will attest to but you get a really really thorough and you know real life experience of what it's actually like being a working journalist if you're interested in and want to hear more about it you can just just shout me on social media it's the easiest way to do it. it's just at mr topple t-o-p-p-l-e third round starts in september and it will run to november so please just give us a shout if you're interested open to anyone the only condition is you can't be middle or upper class because <laughs> Oh, Steve, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on today. Well, it's been me. brilliant chatting to you. Um, I know we've spoken a lot over email and, and uh, Twitter, and uh, it's great to finally meet you in person. Oh, yeah, no, we um, haven't actually, have we, properly? No, no thank you no. for having me. It's always... Oh, you're look, very um, welcome. Anytime, anytime. I'm sure you'll be back now um, to discuss more articles and how your course is going with Amplify. So thanks very much, Steve. Um, thank you very much to everybody who's been listening tonight. And uh, thank you to Steve, our guest. Don't forget to like, subscribe and um, hit that notification bell. And we'll see you this time next week. Good night.